0: This is Alyssa Lenick of Littlest Fitness. And I'm Kate, otherwise known as Coach Carmichael. We are PhD students, endurance athletes who lift, outdoors enthusiasts, and entrepreneurs.
1: We believe the narrative of the fitness and wellness industry is often far too extreme.
0: So forget about the black and white messages that you've heard. On this podcast, we believe that life is best lived in, in the, the messy, messy middle. Hello there, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Messy Middle Podcast. I think we just chatted for like a whole 10 minutes before this episode even started. (laughs) We are both so excited about this episode. So today's guest is Yusra Iftikhar, and if you don't follow her on the DPT Diaries, you are missing out. I actually found Yusra because she reached out to me about branding and did it with Tatum, and then I somehow never really looked at your page until Tatum was showing me your branding. And I was like, this is beautiful. And she was like telling me all about your mission and your message. I was like, I never even thought twice to look at, I like don't look and creepily look into people. And then I started following you and interacting with you more. And I was like, wait a second. I was like, her stuff is fantastic. It's exactly what is needed. I think in like the upper level fields of physical therapy or just general health wellness um, industries um, from professional standpoints. And just as such a breath of fresh air, and also your style and branding and colors are like, are like my favorite things in the world. So I'm always like, when I see your content, I'm like, it's beautiful. But she is a recent graduate of Duke, Duke, correct? Is that where mm-hmm. you want to? Okay. Duke Doctor of Physical Therapy Program. She's a writer, a blogger. She's a fierce mental health and a minority advocate. Her writing's featured on sites like New Grad Physical Therapy, National Eating Disorder Association, Recovery Warriors, and the American Physical Therapy Association blog, the, in the mighty. So she has a laundry list of awesome, badass things that she's done with her words and the impact that they have, which hopefully we'll carry over in today's episode as well. So she's hoping through her writing, she's going to be able to bring more insight to people's lives as physical therapists and just navigating all the struggles in mental health and wellness and just social justice as a whole. So she's a great leader in diversity, inclusion, and anti-racism, something I think we've all been conversing more this year. So hopefully her words are just going to be as powerful as they are all these other places that you're featured today in um, this episode as well. So welcome. Thank you. We are so excited to have you. Oh, well, thank you for creepily
2: looking into me and thank you for having me.
0: I'm, I'm so excited to be here. We stalked you a little bit.
2: <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's with love. It's with love. Um, yeah. <laughs> all right. So the first
1: thing that we like to ask our guests on the Messy Middle podcast is their messy middle journey. And we know that as humans, we all go through this period of learning and unlearning a lot of what society has crafted, these like messages of extreme polarizing um, that really don't jive well with a healthy life. Um, Uh, and a life of wellness. So can you maybe share with us a little bit about your story through the extremes to more of the messy middle approach that you have today?
2: Yes, absolutely. So, um, and I wanted to say this too, real quick. I wanted to wait till we were recording, but it's not always the case that I have like listened to every episode of the podcast that I'm gonna be on that I'm already like a huge fan and like totally geeking out. So I just think y'all are doing such an incredible job with this. So I just really appreciate y'all having me again. Um, Yeah, gosh, where to start? So uh, my story starts um, fairly early on. I mean, so I am an immigrant to the United States. I was born in Pakistan, um, moved over here when I was less than a year old so to me my life i've always been american um you know this is my culture um and yet i've got like the pakistani side of things too um my younger siblings were all born here and so kind of as you go down the list from like oldest to youngest we kind of get more american um but having that pakistani influence has been really interesting because on the one side i absolutely love my culture um i love my faith so i'm muslim um and that is really important to me but sometimes i think that there can always be aspects of culture that aren't always uh don't always allow you to live in that kind of messy middle um mm. so growing up I was always kind of taught that the ideal um which I think exists kind of in a western culture too is thin and white um quiet if you're a woman mm. uh and <laughs> I am none of those things and so uh and I never was and so I think always growing up as kind of an anomaly um kind of growing up Being known as the rebellious one, just based on the fact that, like, I look the way that I do, um, that I laughed as loud as I did, that was always. Uh, kind of challenged. Um, and so when I was in high school, I actually applied my sophomore year of high school to go to a boarding school for junior and senior year, partially because I knew it was a really good school, but also because I was kind of looking for an out and I was looking for a way to kind of gain my own independence. And so for junior and senior year of high school, um, I went to a boarding school. It's called the North Carolina School of Science and Math, actually right down the street from Duke. Um, and so it was always really fun as a high schooler getting mistaken as a Duke student. Um, but I when I was there, I had the time of my life. Um, you know, I ate whatever I wanted. It was super diverse. So I was never really worried about like racism. Um, and I'm sure other people there experienced it. You know, that's not to discount any challenges other people had, but uh I paid very little attention to my classes and a lot of attention to my friends and I had a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then after that I went to UNC, uh Chapel Hill. It was my dream school. I again spent most of my time with my friends going to basketball games, like I'm a huge college basketball fan. And so for me, living life kind of in the middle was natural. Like it it felt easy um, because I knew there was that influence of people wanting me to lose weight. My mom's friends, you know, always kind of slipping uh, recipes across the table at dinner parties and encouraging me not to eat um, and encouraging me to use this cream that um, I actually have never talked about this on my blog because it's a very kind of sensitive topic for me, but it's called Fair and Lovely. I don't know if it's still something that's popular, but um, it's, it basically bleaches your skin. So it's for like lightening your skin. Um, and that was yeah. something that, you know, my mom's friends, again, like it really encouraged me to use. I have used it multiple times like when I was little. Um, and so always kind of trying to force me into this, in this mold that I just was never meant to fit. Um, and it wasn't until I went to my master's program that things really kind of changed for me. Because when I was a teenager and when I was in college, like I had a ton of friends. My support system was really strong. Um, I love my family. I was close to my family. And so it was easy for me to rebel against those messages and say, oh, they're mm-hmm. just older women. They're crazy. You know, whatever thoughts <laughs> I had at that time. Um, and so I was fine being like, no, I am who I am. And like, I'm happy it wasn't until I wasn't happy anymore that all of a sudden I realized I had internalized all of those messages Mm -hmm. over the Mm years. So um, I went on to do my master's at North Carolina State. I got my master's in physiology. Um, You know, people are always impressed when they hear that. But honestly, I did it for two reasons. One was to buy myself time. I was still pre-med at the time and hadn't taken the MCAT. I wasn't excited about being pre-med. I was pre-med because my dad is a physician and because that's just kind of culturally what was expected of me. Uh, yeah. And I also did my master's because I wanted to improve my science GPA. Cause like I said, wasn't really into the pre-med thing. So my science GPA wasn't as good. And I spent most of my time at the Dean Dome, which is the basketball arena at Chapel Hill. <laughs> <laughs> so and my master's helped me to accomplish both things, which was to figure out a career and also improve my science GPA enough to pursue it. But it was at that time that uh, I kind of ended up um, you know, in some unhealthy relationships. I was distanced from my family. My family moved from North Carolina to Indiana. Um, I didn't realize how hard that would be for me because I figured I went to boarding school. I've been on my own for a long time, but, um, just that knowing that your family is nowhere near you and that you can't just drive home for a weekend if you need to, uh, that was something that was really tough for me mentally. So I felt very alone and I was living in Raleigh where a lot of my closest friends that I had grown up with still lived a bunch of people from Chapel Hill still lived there. And yet for some reason, I just could not find it in me to reach out to them for help. And so it was around that time that I really strictly started uh, tracking my calories and started to move away from that messy middle. So I think for me, it wasn't so much that like my life journey led up to a messy middle. It was that I had it and I enjoyed it, and then I lost it. And then now I think I'm kind of closer back to where I used to be. But um, in college, I had been dragged to a Zumba class, and I was like, there is no way in hell. Like, I grew up in a little bit of an athlete, but I just was not into working out in college. Um, But a friend took me, I absolutely fell in love. I ended up falling in love with running, then weightlifting. I took a women's only weightlifting class uh, with my best friend from uh, elementary school, actually. Um, who also went to Chapel Hill and just fell in love with working out, fell in love with like nutrition um, and the research behind it. And so I ended up losing, uh, I won't say the number in case it's triggering for people, but um, quite a bit of weight in a year. I looked like a completely different person and I did it in a healthy way, Um, but then came back all of those same people who had told me in my childhood that I should be dieting. And, um, you know, some, some people, um, that did not know me at all who said, Oh my gosh, now you can get married because now you're thin. And so, uh, before I was able to rebel against those kind of ideas, but now that I was, I was thin and I was strong, um, all of a sudden I couldn't enjoy it because I had internalized those messages over the years. So um, I ended up kind of manifesting an eating disorder. And I think for me, that was kind of always in the cards for me. It just was a matter of when. Um, And so at that point in my master's, when I was vulnerable, when I felt very alone, um, when I wasn't close with my friends anymore, that was a time when I really, really struggled. So for two years I had the eating disorder, took a leave of absence for a semester, um, but still like didn't really get help during that time had to really advocate for myself to go to counseling. So when I first started going to counseling, I did it in secret, um, because I didn't think my parents would approve. And it was, you know, definitely a string of conversations to get them to accept that it wasn't something that was a weakness, um, and that mm-hmm. it's okay to seek out help. And the fact that I had counseling for free when I was in grad school, like that's huge. And now I really miss that as a working yes. professional, you know? Um, and so yeah, so that was a struggle. I took a year off, moved to Indiana with my family, worked at the hospital, realized that I loved physical therapy. Um, and I can get into a little more later too, like why I chose physical therapy, but uh, went to Duke. And then I went to to Duke hoping that um, it would be nice to be back in a familiar area um, since I'd gone to high school in Durham and I'd gone to college all around there. And then Uh, hoping to really get at like the mental wellness side of physical therapy, just because that was something I had struggled so much with. And at that Mm -hmm. time, um, in my master's, Zumba became incredibly triggering for me. It was really hard for me not to just like watch myself in the mirror and see how much weight I had either lost or gained that week. And um, I would leave multiple Zumba classes in panic attacks and start crying. And there were multiple times outside the gym where girls would stop and be like, are you okay? Like, do you need help? And Um, looking back, I tried really hard not to be embarrassed knowing just how much pain I was in, you know, and how, how much of a struggle Mm -hmm. it was, but it was a very just unsettled chaotic time in my life. Um, but yeah, and then I got to Duke and then, um, I realized that racism is very pervasive in higher education and in healthcare. Mm -hmm. When I was at Carolina, I was living very much in a privileged bubble. My parents' health was great. Uh, we had money. Um, you know, I, there was never anything that I really, truly struggled with. Um, I had faced racism all my life, but that was just kind of something that I had accepted as part of my experience. Uh, Mm -hmm. but it was not something that I anticipated going into, to PT, um, and into grad school. And so I think the fact that it threw me off so much was something that really fueled me then trying to address it. Um, Mm -hmm. and so now that I've graduated, um, after all that, I feel like for me, anti-racism body acceptance and physical therapy are my three like main passions and it's really mm. cool for me to be able to see that they all really come together um, and they all work together so mm-hmm. uh, as a new professional it's definitely very scary to be talking about those things but um, luckily I have a really great job that supports me in continuing to blog and to talk about those things within the company and um, just hoping to to keep growing in that but it's I mean a huge struggle every day and so when I wake up every day rather than it now being something natural like it used to be I have to choose a messy middle for myself and, mm-hmm. and, uh, try really hard to go against what my mind naturally wants to do, which is to go to, you know, the extremes.
0: When did you make that decision then specifically on choosing physical therapy, right? Like obviously you were pre-med, that was not your normal natural track. And then when did you decide to start the blog? Because I think a lot of the other questions that we want to ask you and talk about probably all start with that pivot in your, in your choices there. Yeah. So
2: yeah, I think you're right. So I chose physical therapy halfway through my master's program. It was a two-year program. And when I was in, in undergrad, my roommate in college, um, who was also my roommate in high school, she decided to pursue athletic training, and she wanted to go to physical therapy school. And so she knew I was struggling in my decision with pre-med. They knew, both of my roommates knew I was having a hard time with actually committing to taking the MCAT, even though I'd already paid thousands of dollars for a, an MCAT prep course, and I had already signed up for the MCAT. And kept pushing it back, which is also hundreds of dollars. Um, and my roommate was like, I really think you should look into physical therapy. Like, I think you'd really enjoy it and I think your personality would fit. And I was like, No, why would I ever do that? All you do is walk with old people. And I like felt so bad (laughs) saying that. But that was just my understanding of what PT was. I clearly had never seen a PT live in action. Um, and I figured, why do that and not really get paid a whole lot (laughs) that I could go to medical school, you know, like all my friends Mm -hmm. wanted to do. And so, uh, but halfway through my master's, I was like, well, I'm very unhappy. And I had shadowed many physicians at that point. And while I really respected uh, all of their work and their um, collaborative nature with their patients, I just felt like it wasn't enough. I didn't feel like they got to spend enough time with their patients. And that's Mm -hmm. obviously not the physician's fault, but it's just the nature of their job. Uh, And so I thought, fine, screw it. I will go shadow a physical therapist just so I can show my roommate that she is wrong and that I'm going to hate it. Um, And I absolutely loved it. (laughs) The very first patient that came in, she had just jumped out of a plane for like her 94th birthday and was super sassy. And I was terrified of her. And I was like, That's I amazing. just want to go home. And then afterwards she gave me a hug and was like, you were just going to be an amazing physical therapist. And I was like, Oh, well, I can't not go to PT school now. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was kind of what fueled things for me. And then whenever, you know, I was having my own mental health struggles and I lost fitness and I lost, um, the enjoyment that came with exercise, I knew that, you know, I never wanted that to happen to anyone else. And then that patient actually Mm. stopped coming to PT after a couple of months, because she also um, was battling depression and anxiety and felt, you know, Mm. I'm so-and-so age, and what's the point of even trying anymore? Um, And I knew that it wasn't ever guaranteed that I could stop that for every single person, but I had to do everything in my power to make sure my patients didn't feel that way in the future.
1: Yeah. Can we talk a little bit more about uh, the physical therapy profession in terms of, yeah. you know, um, like you said, there's kind of this perception that you're just helping old people with like daily activities. And of course, the field spans um, not only like so many different populations, but so many different areas of discipline. Like there, you can specialize in so many different areas, um, orthopedics, child um, what's the word? For pediatrics. <laughs> pediatrics. Thank you. Yeah. I'm like, why did my brain just forget? <laughs> right. Orthopedics, pediatrics, you know, um, there's so many different avenues for physical therapy and it can mean so much, um, in, in, whether it's preventative or, uh, whether you're treating. So can you maybe zoom out on the physical therapy field in terms of what, uh, Different physical therapists are doing in their day-to-day jobs and then uh, bring us a connection to that mental wellness side of things. Because as you said, it's, it's obviously integrated and tied into how we exercise and how we move our bodies. But I think in traditional physical therapy, it might be a criticism of the field that that side of things are kind of ignored um, so I'm sorry if that was a little long, but it, will you walk no, us I through that, that journey?
2: No, okay, you great. kind of just did my job for me. So I love that. Like, <laughs> some ideas on where to go. So, um, yeah, I mean, everything you said is is very true. Um, so whenever I first started looking into physical therapy, what I saw of it, which I think most people see or think of, especially the way it's, like, portrayed in, in media or, like, on Grace Anatomy or wherever, yeah. is... Um, Either it's orthopedics and sports, which is your typical outpatient um, treating athletes and treating kind of people uh, like weekend warrior types, um, or you're in the hospital and um, as it's typically shown on TV shows, like your patients are falling all over the place. That should not be happening in real physical therapy, Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah. I mean, like you said, PTs work kind of everywhere. So PTs work in schools. Um, they do work for professional teams uh, and in college sports uh, with specific teams. They can work just in general outpatient clinics. Um, and then even with an outpatient, there's so many different areas of practice. So there's orthopedics um, where I am, there's pelvic health, which I didn't know about until I got yeah. to PT school. And I also now treat patients with pelvic health concerns, um, which is very, very closely tied to mental health. Uh, but uh, yeah, and then there's pediatrics as well. And so what I really love about physical therapy is currently you don't have to specialize. Um, and even if you do, you'll still see an overlap. So for example, mm-hmm. if I really loved sports physical therapy, I could decide to go work with um, like a high school team. But that's also technically pediatrics, if you think about it, um, because mm-hmm. a lot of them are going to be under 18. Um, and then a, a, a very common issue, um, among women, including teenage, uh, uh, girls is, um, like urinary incontinence and leaking. And that happens a lot during exercise. And so now mm-hmm. all of a sudden I'm no longer just a sports physical therapist, but I also am now a pelvic floor physical therapist and also I'm a pediatric physical therapist and maybe a school physical therapist. Maybe I work there with the school. Um, and yeah. so I personally really love that overlap. Um, as a PT, it keeps me on my toes, it keeps things exciting, I'm easily bored. And so PT allows for <laughs> that to never really happen. Um, but yeah, and so like you said, PT can be preventative, or it can be kind of like a rehab journey. So um a lot of people, for example, if they're going in for surgery, sometimes they will be approved for physical therapy to strengthen before they go in for surgery so that they're stronger, and so that their rehab can be better. Um, it can be very preventative for um like children who are born with certain conditions. So like um children with Down syndrome um have a lot of laxity and so their uh joints just move more than um their their classmates might and that can be dangerous for a few different reasons and so getting physical therapy for that and to like promote uh movement and um function essentially so whatever is going to get a person to um, as close to the function as like they would desire. That's really what physical therapy is there for. So a lot of times people say that, um, you know, like a physician or a PA or a nurse might like save your life. And then a physical therapist gives your life back to you. Um, and mm-hmm. I really love that characterization because one, it like highlights um, kind of the importance of all providers. But um, I think for me, like culturally PT isn't held in high regard um, necessarily. It's not, you know my little brother jokes all the time that like you're not a real doctor even though it is not a degree um Uh and so for me I can take away all of that and say but I know that I'm giving people their life back um and I know that that's that's what's important and so yeah I mean really any setting that you can think of PTs are there um or could be or maybe should be um and I really love that about the field
1: a uh, quick interjection before as yes. takes the next question because my fiance also struggles he's in physical therapy school for listeners who don't know and he his brother does the same thing he's like well you're not a, you're not a doctor you're not going to be a doctor right. like a physician <laughs> so like you're not and I, I so my resounding yeah was just a relation not like an excitement that you're <laughs>
0: Being told you're not a real doctor, but yeah. Right. Are any of us real doctors? No, I know the <laughs> that too, right? Yeah. Um, okay, so I love how you gave that context because I came, you know, me and Kate both came through similar backgrounds of like we could have gone to PT school from the tracks that we were on. And I know yeah, that right. Kate, that was her original plan. And for me, I remember thinking. I had kind of similar ways where I thought of the field incorrectly and I was like, oh my God, I would hate that. I would hate that so much because I thought it was just very mundane, repetitive, like nine to five, you're like just bending people's legs for them. And I think it's maybe because I had some very (laughs) lackluster experiences because I have extreme laxity. So I had physical therapists and chiropractors and doctors and Mm. I tried all the works when I was growing up. I didn't really know. Um, And I think I just had really boring experiences with it. And I was like, okay, I cannot do this. This is just because I get bored easily. And so I like science because there's always changing, but I don't think people realize now because I have a lot more respect for the physical therapy uh, field now, the more that I've gotten to know professionals in it, especially like you were both mutually friends with Taylor and like talking to her and then getting to know you better and some of the other people and like seeing the breadth and depth of what they know. But the biggest thing is how close the field is actually literally related to exercise science. And so since I teach exercise physiology and courses to students that want to go to PT school. I think they hate me and they think I'm so annoying because I constantly harp on them because I was like, you should value this information because you're yes. mm-hmm. if exercise physiology is the sister, PT is the brother. Like they are related yep. to each other directly. It's just a subset of the field. Like they're it's just an application of everything you're doing here. And I think they get annoyed with me because I want that field to be better. Cause I was like, oh, I was so wrong in how I viewed that going into it. Um, mm-hmm. And so I really like try to like rally for the future physical therapist going into your field. But so building on that in grad school, but I wanted to chime in and add that because I was like sitting here, I was like, yes, okay. Like I was wrong. Sometimes yeah. I'm like, I kind of want to go back to school to get a DPT, but I'm like, yeah. no, listen,
1: <laughs> like stop going to school. There's only one life, unfortunately, you know? I know.
2: I'm well, like, and oh. I can't even imagine how my life might've been different had I had, you know, someone like you to be doing that for me. Because coming from So in undergrad, I majored in psychology and then minored in religious yeah. studies um I did do my master's in physiology but it wasn't exercise physiology and so it was a lot more like cellular level type stuff to then the master's program was essentially set up for pre-med students and like pre-dental um Mm -hmm. and so it wasn't for people who were going to then go on to like become experts in that stuff and then we had I think one exercise physiology class in PT school if you can believe it and it was the hardest thing in the world and I didn't like a lot of it didn't click and so it's something mm-hmm. I'm really insecure about is that and so I love that you are promoting that and so now I'm enrolled in um her her handle is like Doc Brit Fit. yeah. because uh, hey, yeah. oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought yeah I think Alyssa I probably saw it on your page first but um then I went to her yeah. and I was like this is where like I feel like my money should be going like this is yeah. directly going to impact my patients and like yeah maybe not every single one of my patients I'm going to be having that conversation with but it's so important to have that that baseline knowledge so yeah so I love that you're doing that you tell yes. your students that a physical therapist said <laughs> they need to I listen feel to like you. they're oh gosh, like oh I-, I don't need to know this and I'm like guys yes you, you totally do know. Yes, I like also- really harp
1: on it go ahead Kate no, I was going to say, I, ne- I just need to introduce you to my fiance, um, too, because yes. he's, so he he got his master's in exercise physiology and um, his uh, he's a certified personal or sorry, not personal trainer, uh, strength and conditioning specialist. So yeah. he wants to take those principles into physical therapy um, in areas where it's, you know, not maybe progressing exercise in the way that he believes is best. And I just think that you guys would You have the same principles that would make you a good physical therapist, like you're both very extroverted, you care about people you want to challenge. Um, He even describes himself as kind of ADHD, um, even though he never got a formal diagnosis. Uh, But like, that, that like always being bored and like wanting a challenge I just I I need That'll you guys be awesome. to be in a room together what yeah. sounds like I, yeah. the
0: field of getting from everyone that I interact with and you in this conversation and like I've met Peter and I feel like there's that that's a consensus in a lot of young educated professionals in the field of like that being this the stance um and we're like I'm not in PT but I want to mentor students that are going to go into that or med school mm-hmm. or whatever it is mm-hmm. to have that integration of exercise because I think that's really missing and so We'll pivot back to our original point here um, <laughs> on grad school specifically instead of just, like, hyping up PTs. So. <laughs> but this this ties back into that. So we just did a big double episode on grad school in season in season one. This will be season two. It was and fantastic so, for anyone yes, listening. Yes, thank you. Great. <laughs> so we, had, we obviously have different experiences because we picked yep. Ph.D. programs that are, like, research-based. So, like, I think for the listeners that are not in grad school here – both of our degrees are all upper level and we're all going to be called doctor after it. But like a research track PhD is different than like getting like a DPT or like a doctor of pharmacy or a, whatever it is, like a specialty um, terminal spe- clinical. Like, clinical clinical yeah. degree. So um, can you share your insight on the important elements and like what went into like that when you made the priority of choosing a clinical-based graduate program? Like obviously med school is like kind of in its own thing, but when you think mm-hmm. of all the other like terminal type degrees, like when you picked a clinical program for that, what was your process of that? And like, what important elements go into considering that?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So I always kind of knew that I wanted to be around other people. Um, You know, like you said, Caitlin, I'm pretty extroverted, you can probably tell. And so for me, that was where my energy was going to come from. I've always been very friend centric. And so to me, the idea of like being in a lab was just like torture. Now I know better. (laughs) And so when I was listening to y'all's grad school episode, I started thinking like, Huh. I wonder if I could go back to my PhD, like on fingers, I was like, Okay, like one. Can day we just train... trade like lives for a day or right. something? Maybe that would
1: like solve both of our. Yeah. But yeah. honestly,
2: I feel like if we could like Freaky Friday it for one day, Caitlin, that yeah, would be fantastic. I love your like sleep stuff and like it's a psychology but Oh, I just love it. We could talk about that forever. But yes, I am. I am actually considering going back to my PhD after potentially oh um, doing a residency in orthopedics, but um, never leaving school. Oh my gosh! I know. Um, but, uh, yeah. So yes, choosing, choosing a clinical pathway. So that for me, um, was kind of what I was more familiar with. Anyway, my master's program didn't have a research component to it. It could, if you wanted, but you had to like pay extra tuition and you had to kind of do everything yourself in terms of like finding a PI and then someone who's like willing to work with you. And then the master's program would be extended by another six months. And I just didn't love being there enough to even, think about like is that something I want um I just kind of want it out and so um I I think for me it was a little bit of a default I don't think enough um thought and like understanding of what a research pathway would look like went into it but Mm -hmm. um I'm, I'm, I'm definitely you know happy with my decision so what I looked for um was a few different things I would be lying if I said that I didn't look for like a big name school um I wondered how that might help me just in terms of like recognition and legitimacy afterwards. I definitely do not think that it has to matter. I do not think that like anyone needs to be seeking out a big name school um, for any grad program, um, but particularly not PT. You take the same boards as everybody else in the country. Once you're done, um, you're all licensed physical therapists. You're all doctors afterwards. It doesn't matter. Now, that being said, I do think that in some ways it did help me. Um, Duke was a very well-established program and I knew I wanted Mm -hmm. somewhere that was already accredited so there were a lot of newer programs around, um, but that gave me anxiety to think about going through three years of PT school. And then if the program didn't get accredited, I would have to do that all over again um, and I wouldn't be able to sit for board. So those were kind of like my must haves. And then after that, I started looking into um I think what really actually helped was I was already near Duke whenever I had made the decision to go to PT school. NC State is like a 30-minute drive from Duke. And so I went and toured their program first, and I made a list of everything that they offered. And then every other program that I toured, maybe like 10 of them, I compared what they had to offer against that list. And for me, it just never... Um, I never was able to find a program that could offer everything that Duke did and everything that I I felt like I wanted at the time. So uh, one big thing in Duke's program was group work. So you were put on a team um, for two years straight and you were with that team for nearly everything. And then there were a few other teams you'd also be put on for specific like clinical projects and research projects and things like that. Um, Looking back now, I think, I don't think that would would have been a must have. thinking about like what my experience was like Um, but I think that for me like group work ended up being the number one thing because I knew that I kind of wanted instant friends I didn't want that experience again of feeling like my family is so far away from me Mm -hmm. um, and feeling lonely again I also looked at research opportunities so uh, I wanted something where I would get to participate in research get to try my hand at maybe like a publication but I didn't want to be doing research full-time And I knew Duke had a research requirement and I knew if it was required Mm -hmm. that I would then uh, get involved um, rather than trying to figure out how do I balance it with everything else that's going on uh, in life. So that was really nice. And it's interesting because so the research requirement didn't actually end up end up in a publication, but I did end up voluntarily entering a research elective with one of the Duke professors. And that did end up in a publication this summer. So that was really cool. Um, and then I also looked for availability of clinical sites. And what was interesting was Duke actually has a lot less clinical sites available than a lot of other programs, but the way that they described it to us was, um, you know, we really very closely vet our sites. That doesn't mean other programs. Mm -hmm. don't. this is just kind of the experience I went through, but they were like, we have very close partnerships with all of our sites. So we, can almost guarantee you know like a positive experience um or at least we know where we're sending you um and that I felt like wasn't going to be a deal breaker for me that they had less sites because I knew that Duke would do their part in um, getting us solid sites. And I really did love some of my clinical rotations a lot. Um, and so that was really nice. And then I'm trying to think what else I really wanted a good sports culture around there. I wanted to feel like I was mm-hmm. back in college. Um, I wanted something that was associated with the main university. So while the PT campus wasn't on necessarily the main campus it was close enough and so i could use the gym i had access to counseling um i had access to like their basketball games as much as i am not a duke fan (laughs) and did not go to as many games as i probably should have um, That was that was really important to me too to have like a nice culture around. So like Durham, the surrounding community mm-hmm. around Duke has a lot to do, um, and that part of North Carolina is equidistant from like the beach and the mountains. So like that was important to me. So oh, I love that. Um, yeah, and so kind of looking into things too that like didn't necessarily define the program, but sort of the area, because um, I know that when y'all talked about like choosing programs, you talked about uh, like whether or not you chose it based on a specific person, um, and I think for me, like, I didn't choose it because of a certain person. But um, the admissions team, like half of the admissions team were black women. And Mm. I didn't have a good sense of like racism and all that jazz going into PT school. But I did. Maybe it was subconscious. But like, I feel like I was like, oh, I, I could like see myself here like I could Mm -hmm. go here because there's already people who are minorities who are here and they Mm -hmm. seem happy (laughs) and so um I do think that that was a factor for me whether or not it was something I wrote down in my pros and cons list I don't remember and it probably Mm -hmm. wasn't um but I am glad that that's something that kind of I knew to look for uh as well including in the surrounding community like how diverse it was or wasn't yeah
0: the messy middle podcast will be right back after a quick word from our sponsors Are you confused about what supplements you should actually be taking? In a world full of juice cleanses, detox teas, fancy promises, it can really be hard to trust anything. But high quality supplements, when dosed appropriately, can actually help support your fitness goals. And that's why I use Legion. I've been using Legion Supplements since the beginning of this year, and after years of never really fully committing to one single brand due to lack of transparency in their labeling, unnecessary fluff, or just reporting things as blends and not knowing what's actually in my product, I finally found a solid science-based product line that fits my supplementing needs. Legion's products are 100% naturally sweetened. And my favorite part, they're fully transparent in their labeling, and they use dosages that are actually backed with what the science says you need to be effective and support your fitness goals. And not the least amount you can get away with, and not just labeling as blends, but fully transparently telling you what's in your product and why they dosed it that way. And this is huge because it lets you know exactly what you're taking and if it's actually going to be effective, and then you can know what's going into your body. My personal favorites are their cinnamon cereal whey. Yes, it tastes as good as it sounds. The mocha cappuccino plant protein. Pulse, their pre-workout, which comes in non-stimulant or caffeinated stimulant based. And recharge, the recovery blend, which also gives me the creatine I need to move weights well in the gym. Legion offers 100% money back guaranteed if you're not happy with their products. And you can save 20% off your first order today with our code MessyMiddle at checkout. That's M-E-S-S-Y. M-I-D-D-L-E at checkout to save 20% today. Absolutely. Yeah. And I love that you emphasize the fact that you chose, because I mean, obviously you, you listen to our grad school episodes mm-hmm. and um, if you guys haven't and you are in grad school, like go back because that will give you more details on Kate and I's perspectives. But I was someone who struggled immensely with lack of social support and community and friends. And I—that yeah. that is a valid reason to look into a program that comes in as a cohort because your experience coming to a program that you come in as a cohort, like a clinical school or like even when mm-hmm. I started at Bandy, I came in as a cohort. I'm still friends with the girls that I met there, even though I left after a month because yeah. you come in together and it's like, it's kind of like when I went to college and I started on a sports team, you're given friends right off the bat. Mm-hmm. And so, um... Like, I think that that's like a real something that I really wanted to highlight there too, because even in my master's, it wasn't even that I didn't have it had a bad program, there wasn't that many students. So I was so lonely. And that was one of the like, I probably one of the most unhealthy periods of time in my life, those first few months. Or even like me and Kate have talked about in my messy middle episode, like not having social support in my first year and a half of my PhD was the worst thing that I ever could have done for my health. And I had no control yeah. over it, but I really want to emphasize that because I think that's really important because that can play a big role on your experience. And I, I, I say all this to, to preface the mental health aspect of graduate school and to you know tie that into the fact that I think that that's probably where you started to start your blog and you start talking more about those struggles and those things. Mm-hmm. So Um, Can you talk more about like now you're kind of in your program, you've made your decision, like hopefully you have friends and things like that, but how mental health started to tie into the, obviously you were using counseling services prior to this, but then this is where you started your your blog and start to be more vocal about those experiences more, I guess, publicly rather than personally or with a counselor or things like that.
2: Yes. I'm so sorry. You already asked me that about my blog and I just completely went on a tangent. Um, and for okay, a podcast, it was great. I, That's how no. this podcast goes. We asked like six questions
1: and you only really have time to answer one. So <laughs> oh,
2: man. Um, yes, it's such a good question. So I started my blog in 2016. Now, sometimes I struggle to remember exactly when it was, but I think it was before uh, PT school um, because I, you know, being so new to PT, kind of deciding last minute like a lot of people who go to PT school have known for a really long time like either yeah. they have a, a family member who was a PT or they had an injury and then went to PT um Pakistanis don't go to PT after they get injured. it just wasn't like culture it just wasn't a thing um and I think especially having like a parent who was a physician it was always like we'll take a Tylenol and get some rest you know because it always <laughs> seemed worse um and so I, I didn't even know PT existed until my roommate started talking about it in college. And then in 2016, when I decided, okay, yes, this is the shift I want to make. Um, I had one friend who had gone to PT school and that was it. And she did a fantastic job of, you know, trying to inform me about what it would be like. And um, I think she was still in PT school at the time. And so uh, it was cool to hear about some of her experiences, but um, I started A lot of my learning happens on YouTube. (laughs) And so even in PT school, like if I didn't understand something, which is usually exercise physiology, um, I would look up stuff on YouTube and so I started going on YouTube looking for like PT students or PTs who had uh, uploaded videos and a lot of it was for pre-meds pre-PA and Mm pre-nursing and that helped a lot it helped to learn about the medical field in general helped to learn what it was like in medical school um, because I think that there's a lot of overlap and yet I couldn't find anybody in PT school um, or physical therapist assistant school who was blogging about those types of things so I figured well I might as well document my own journey so it was kind of a, a mesh of that and me needing to cope with my own mental health struggles. So I hated journaling at the time. I hated journaling up until about two weeks ago when I started journaling again. Um, And for me, like my hand would cramp up and I found it frustrating and I was like, I don't want to address like the things that are going on. But the idea of putting it into an online blog where I could then mess with like the colors and the fonts and like make it look nice. That to me was something that was creative, something I could do with my hands. And so that was something I wanted to put my time into. So I actually started my blog with a different name. Um, it was, um, so the name of the blog was ease and honor, which are the meanings of my first and last name. Um, And it started off, so (laughs) So it started off purely as a mental health blog. And Mm -hmm. I would blog a lot about um, things related to the disordered eating that I was struggling with and weight loss um, and exercise. Um, And then as I was continuing this pre PT journey, I was like, "Well, I really like have no idea what I'm getting myself into other than the little bit of shadowing that I've done. And all of that was an outpatient ortho or sports. So it wasn't even a full picture of what PT is. And so I started documenting um, kind of my own journey and had spent a lot of time throughout high school and undergrad, like editing my friend's essays. I had become mm-hmm. one of my friends kind of like go-tos to do that. Mm-hmm. And so when I did end up getting into PT school, that was a service that I started offering was to, to edit essays for um, any pre-health sort of like admissions essays so um that's something that I still do now which is really fun but yeah it basically just kind of came out of like a need for me to better understand what I was getting myself into so I figured I might as well just document it for someone in the future um, in case they go through a similar struggle where they're like what the hell is this (laughs) like (laughs) what am I getting myself into and kind of what can I get out of it
1: Yeah. And now you've created, I mean, it's, it's really like an online resource. Like if I have somebody going through physical therapy now, I am sending them to your blog, you know, because there's, yeah, but not only do you, I mean, run the gamut of so many things, like you just talked about how you chose a program. I know you have blog posts on that. And I know you have blog posts on navigating, you know, different experiences in physical therapy. So for somebody who is, you know, approaching the field, they have so much gain from that blog now um which is incredible but um you don't just talk about physical therapy um of course right. you like you said it started as a mental health blog and you definitely address general well-being and and a lot of those things um and i've i've went through your blog we talked about stalking you you know uh, so <laughs> i i looked at a couple of things and um from from physical therapy uh kind of moving into uh like you said you were you were thrilled that there were maybe some other minority people that looked happy there. But of course, in the health field, I think you stated this earlier, in higher education, there seems to be a disconnect where we believe people will be more accepting and more um, educated on these issues of race and diversity, inclusion, and yet <laughs> that's not the case. Um, and so right. you yourself have experienced that. You've also witnessed um, microaggressions and, and other ways that healthcare in general doesn't Attend to people equally as much mm-hmm. as we would love to believe that. Um, and there was a, an article that you wrote about kind of your own personal journey, um, not not from your experiences, but from an as an onlooker, as somebody mm-hmm. who is growing into the physical therapy space. Um, you talked about an experience where you were at, I think it was a hospital um, mm-hmm. that you were working at, where um, or shadowing at, and there was an experience that you witnessed with um, somebody who who was already doctored in the, in the field, you know, um, Mm -hmm. representing microaggression after microaggression to a black woman and maybe um, not being as sensitive to her pain and Mm -hmm. her needs and um, harping on, you know, the dangers of opioid use. And yet to the next white woman who rates their pain a lot lower is, you know, ready to receive whatever medications she desires. Right. And so, you know, you start to your eyes widen to this disparity in, in our health fields. And I think um, you mentioned that that kind of sparked some intrigue into into your own self. And like you said, maybe you weren't as aware. Um, uh, and it wasn't as a top concern for you. But that grew. Mm-hmm. There's a very long winded way of asking you <laughs> to elaborate on those experiences and how you became to be such um, an activist and really using your your blog. um for anti-racism and inclusion as well. And you talk about it on your Instagram page, which
2: we love. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. So, um, yes, that's a great question. I It's something that, um, you know, I think we could talk about for days and a lot of people do, you know, that's become yeah. their life's work is that activism and being an advocate. And I, I think that um, for me, I... So the very first experiences I had in PT school that were related to either my race or religion were positive. Um, It was the week of orientation and someone in, in Duke's leadership Pulled me aside and said, Hey, we noticed you wear a headscarf. Um, What is it that we can do to make you more comfortable here? Um, And then they explained to me the process of like practical exams and how some of them would require um, certain parts of the body to be exposed or just for like the body to be like touched and poked and prodded um, in general. And I really appreciated that. And I said, Hey, here are my limits. Like, here's Um, How much skin I'm willing to show, like things like that, that um, can be uncomfortable, but it was less so because someone had had started that conversation. Um, They showed me a curtain that had been put up in one of the classrooms so that if there was like, we had like a massage practical. um, And so I like still participated as a patient, but then we just like went behind the curtain and we had like a a woman, a female. uh proctor and my partner uh was one of my teammates um who was very like good about being um attentive to all that stuff so uh things started off great (laughs) and um like i I didn't know that this was something i'd be battling and so um wanting to like take on the role of an advocate um and i don't think i would consider myself an activist but i would love to be um it's interesting because i struggle with that a lot in that sometimes I want so bad to like go literally get my PhD in this stuff and Mm -hmm, to fight for for marginalized communities and to do that work and then sometimes I get very frustrated that I shouldn't have to um and Mm -hmm. I shouldn't be like I a couple of points was very unhappy and went to my advisor and said I want to drop out like I want to transfer and they were like no but like we need you in this field and like we need you to then like you know, show Muslim women after you that they can go into PT and to help patients who look like you who might be more comfortable with you because you understand them. And I would get very frustrated and say, that's not my job. I didn't sign up for that. You know, I didn't ask for that. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't tell a white student that it's their job to go treat white patients. So why is it my job to then go back to communities where people look like me um, and do that? Like, why can't a white person do that essentially was, you know, my, my kind of um, thought. And I figured, well, if you're telling me that that's what I have to do, then you're absolving my white counterparts of any guilt of not doing that. You know, if they decide they don't want to live in a more diverse area or they don't want to treat patients who are Muslim or black or brown or whatever, um, or are patients who like belong to the LGBTQ community, they're allowed to do that, but I'm not. And so it's always been, and I think it always probably will be this kind of internal conflict of like frustration and feeling petty and wanting to like do the right thing and realizing that I have so much privilege and that I'm even in this position um, to get to help people. So So, that, yeah,
0: no, go for it. No, go ahead. I was just going to add to that because I know you wrote this in your like interview sheet too, where you put, and you can correct me if I phrase this wrong, where it shouldn't be your job to do that. And it's not every marginalized person's job to do that, but you still choose to take part in having a voice in that. So how did, like, I think this is probably where you struggle with the navigation of that. So what has, I guess, led you to still choose even despite your frustrations um, to do that? But for our listeners who maybe aren't a marginalized individual on un- mm-hmm. an understanding that it still isn't your job technically to do that. And it's a choice that you're making at the end of the day.
1: Right. Well, to, to bring up the sentence here, uh, that I, I had, I had highlighted is that every, every minority person must deal with racism because that exists in our culture. Yeah. Um, but not every minority is responsible for educating white people. <laughs> that's. Yeah, right. I mean, that's really what it comes down to.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yes. So you're right. And I think it comes down to your relationship with, so like if you are white, it really comes down to your relationship with a person who is BIPOC or black, indigenous, or person of color. Um, yeah and you can of course extend this to to like the lgbtq community or any other marginalized community yeah. and so for me like i am happy to have these conversations day and night and i have my whole life with people who are already my friends you know um mm-hmm. so they don't see me as the minority in their life like i'm not a token mm-hmm. i'm their friend or i'm their classmate or their teammate or their colleague like they have already taken the time to show me respect in a different way. And that's what tells me that I can trust them because as much as like the black lives matter moved to the front of everybody's consciousness this summer, as much as we're having difficult conversations that I've seen, um, in kind of like the fitness C space on Instagram about whether or not it is like a white person's job, um, to speak out on politics, you know, it happened of course, to also be an election year. Um, I think that, um I think all of that is really hard and I think I always tell uh my white friends and they always respond with the same thing I always say it must be really hard to be a white ally right now because there is that that struggle of well, what if I say the wrong thing? Or are people gonna jump down my throat and like am I gonna get in trouble? And my friends always respond with, oh, it's not that hard. It's not as hard as being a friend. <laughs> so I think they're trying to like yeah. be a good friend and you know, make yeah. you know, yeah. me feel better about it. But um, but yeah, gosh, what was I saying? I feel like I could go in so many directions with this, but I think that one, it can't be so if we live in a system of oppression and white supremacy, which is Nobody's fault, like in the circle, right? Like just cause you're white doesn't mean that you invented white supremacy. This was like hundreds wow. of years ago. It's not yeah. you. Um, but we do choose what systems we decide to dismantle and what we decide to uphold in our mm-hmm. daily actions and conversations. So if there's a system that oppresses a certain group of people, it can't be those people alone that are then trying to dismantle that system that was c- constructed mm-hmm. very intelligently to oppress them for so long, um, and to continue to do so. So it is my belief, and it's my recent belief. This is kind of something that I've come to terms with, maybe over like honestly the past couple of weeks. Is it's with the help of BIPOC people, but it's white people who are who can d- truly dismantle white supremacy, um, yeah. because they are the ones who truly benefit from it and are at the top. Um, so that's one one part of it. Um, but like I said, in terms of yeah, like it's it's maybe not my job to. Educate white people on my experiences, but also how can I expect a white person who happened to have grown up in a majority white town? Um, you know, for me, like I'm the first Muslim a lot of my friends had ever met. Um, and how can I expect them to know certain things um, if they are unknowingly benefiting from a, a certain system? So yeah. that's why I try to, even in like my email signature now, I have like a link to an audio file. For my name pronunciation. And I need um, to put in there like it phonetically spelled out for anyone who like it, you know, is hard of hearing or anything like that. But um, like that would be ridiculous if you saw my name and like got it right on the first try. You know what I mean? Like I can't I <laughs> tried really hard that. though. <laughs> so, no, and I honestly mispronounce my own name incorrectly. Like technically, my first name is an Arabic word, and it's not Arabic speakers don't pronounce it that way.
0: <laughs> so we yeah, can get yeah.
2: into that later too. So but if I feel like if somebody's my close friend, like that is, I, I will take on that responsibility because I know that they're not going to, their first reaction is not going to be to like disagree with me or to yeah. automatically try to put me down and to try to discount anything that I've been through. Um, I surround mm-hmm. myself with people who I trust and who I trust to have like an open conversation with. So I've been called intolerant before by someone in my profession and they were like, well, you can't handle having all opinions and i was like no i can handle all opinions i can't handle all tones and the way that some people like come at me so i my, yeah, my yeah, friends and yeah my friends and i talk about everything under the sun and we do not agree on everything including politics including religion um i am often the only muslim in my own like in my 80 person cohort at duke i was the only muslim mm. um i was the only pakistani and so mm-hmm. um and there were two other south asian girls none of neither of them were Muslim, so they didn't wear a headscarf and i still got mistaken for them all the time and it's like you would think that the one person <sighs> wearing a headscarf would be the only person that would be easy to like kind of pick out and remember yeah. you know yeah. um and yet like that never happened for me so like we can get into a conversation about microaggressions too but um i feel like if a person of color is reliving their traumas to try and educate you to make things easier for both of you that is a blessing, you know, and like, take that, take advantage of it. Ask all the questions. Like if it's someone you trust and you know that you're not going to offend them, like ask them so that you can be a better ally. Nobody is saying that racism is your fault. Nobody's saying you invented it or that your ancestors necessarily invented it, but like it's here. And so Mm -hmm. for me, like a denial of things that exist is a very difficult first step to overcome, but I think it's a very important one um, because I feel like my white allies are almost more comfortable having some of these conversations because they know that like that's their job. Like it's yeah. it's and one of my professors at Duke um we had a uh, a conversation about this stuff this summer as well because I'm on an anti-racism task force for them still. Mm-hmm. And he um is a white man who grew up in the South. And so he definitely like grew up around people of color. But he said that like in all his time at Duke and as an educator, he never felt like it was his responsibility. He would always support people who wanted to support anti-racism efforts, but he never mm-hmm. felt like it had to be like him. Um it could be mm-hmm. like something that other people are interested in. But racism and like these like systemic things like systemic oppression these are things that have impacted everybody so like Mm -hmm. while I may not be that into like treating patients with strokes technically I don't have to I don't have to go into neuro PT but I have to care about their like humanity you know because Mm -hmm. that is something that impacts everybody so it's not the same thing as like specializing in something in PT which I think a lot of people take diversity, equity, and inclusion issues as like, oh, you're interested in this, go for it. doesn't work that way. Because if you're not also interested and in invested, then I still face the same barriers that I always have. And I always will.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I wanted to key in on your, your, um, Phrase of like oh well that's other people's problems like oh, we hear yeah. that a lot I think and especially in an election year um it's it's been kind of a difficult way to navigate those conversations because some people believe that in this current election that they could separate politics from social issues um right. that we really in my opinion could not separate this year right. in particular racism is inherently political our systems yes. are intertwined with it like that's that's absolutely not up for debate so. That's part right. of it. But like you said, you don't have to be a politician to be an ally. And that's right. that's what I like. And um, I, I would, if you will, speak on that a little bit more in terms of what allyship can be. Um, mm-hmm. And for people listening who want to step up, um, as we all have been called to do so, um, mm-hmm. what are those those ways that they can do that?
2: Yeah. So and I think I always try to make it a point to tell people that I was once completely disconnected from politics and social justice issues. Like when I was in college, my two roommates were very into politics. So they would talk about things a lot. And it would just go in one ear and out the other. And I would pretend to listen or I straight up would put in my headphones and start doing my work or I would talk about something else. Like, I did not care. I didn't think it impacted me. Um, and, you know, as a woman, like so many politics do impact us. And like, as a person yeah. of color, so many, you know, um, politics did impact me and I was just so kind of ignorant to all of it. So I always try to tell people like, one, you don't have to have been invested in these things for your entire life to care, start caring about it now. And also, um you know, it's, it's not something I ever want someone to feel like guilty about, you know, that they like don't know something. Um, Because my like biggest pet peeve is when people are like, you didn't know that. Because I'm so like insecure about that sometimes. And so I feel like that's an important point to bring up too, is that like, really, a lot of this stuff became important to me when I started experiencing it these past few years. And it's such a selfish take. And yet, I feel Mm -hmm. like that's sometimes where our passions come from, right? Um, Is our experiences. So I think that for me, um, when I first started really learning about allyship and like what that might mean, I would think about like grand gestures. So, um, I've had, for example, uh, people who did not know me, um, and only knew me through social media stick up for me against racism on social media, um, when somebody was saying something against me. Um, and so that to me like is allyship and it was a a straight white male and he could have easily seen it. And thought oh that sucks and then kept scrolling right he could still care about me and just not say anything um Mm -hmm. but it was really cool to see that he like put himself in harm's way um to do that so I think a lot of allyship can be those bigger gestures the more public ones, and we need those. um, Because I think it sets a really good example. And so a lot of allyship involves putting yourself in harm's way, um, in some in some way, and especially in higher education it just seems to be that like a lot of times people like the status quo, there's a certain group of people who set that and you know, that's not supposed to be challenged. Um, And Alyssa, when you asked me, like, why do you still choose to speak up on these things? Mm-hmm. I think for me, I don't do well with being told what to do. <laughs> and so <laughs> it would I be that. something where I would literally be like, okay, I'm just not going to talk about this stuff anymore. I'm just going to be the good student. Like, I'm going to be a good, you know, employee, not going to talk about it. And then something would happen the next day. And then I'd be fired up all over again. And I'd be like, no, we need to talk about this. Like, mm-hmm. this is unacceptable. And so um, sometimes that's gotten me into like, not never trouble but I'm sure there are people out there who like don't respect me as much as they did day one when they met me and they thought I was just like a very quiet kind of like subdued person because in the beginning I was. Um, And so I think though, when I really think about like, who are the consistent allies in my life um, who basically like are all my best friends, it's sometimes hard for me to think of like actual things that they've done. Um, Like, I don't know that they've necessarily ever like tweeted something in my support, you know, I don't know, they, they're not out there like blogging about it. And yet they are my strongest allies. And it's because of the way that they just consistently show up every day. One, I know that their values um, are that they love people and that they don't hate me just for the color of my skin, or the faith that I follow that might be different from theirs, or that I am a woman, you know, trying to like pursue whatever. Um, and so that is one and then the fact that they will constantly go to bat for you in all these different ways that includes me calling them and them just listening and not trying to like fix the situation and me saying this happened to me and like I don't know if I'm crazy like I don't know if this is racism because that's what a lot of microaggressions are too is microaggressions Mm -hmm. are still racism they just are a lot more of an accepted form of it and they're very pervasive and um aren't like huge forms of overt racism so then it's easy to question yourself when you come across them and think no, maybe I'm being oversensitive and so those Mm. are the people in your life then the allies who say no that does sound kind of off to me I think if it happened to me like that seems weird and people who are willing to say I don't know what that's like like I don't know what life is like in your shoes but I can certainly understand that like you're upset right now and like let's talk about it or like what can I do um and you know other people if they're saying things that sound kind of questionable, allies are the ones that are educating themselves on language that could be harmful, that doesn't seem harmful, and even seems like it's uh, helping you or that it's uh, complimenting you. And being comfortable enough to say, oh, hey, actually, that's not really the term that's used anymore. Or, oh, you know, what do you mean by that? And kind of starting to question these things, even in a subtle way. So there are so many different ways to be an ally. And honestly, if you Google it, you'll find, blog posts from so many people of different perspectives Mm -hmm. of all these different tips to be an ally. And I think that, you know, it was fantastic that there were all these book lists going around this summer and all these, like, you have to watch 13th on Netflix, and then you have to read How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi. And then, you know, you watch this TED Talk. And I think that's great, as long as it's translating over into your actual relationships with people Mm -hmm. and the way that you are then conducting yourself. I can read how to be an anti-racist and still be the most racist person on the planet. You know, like that doesn't necessarily mean anything. And so I don't want to discount anybody's efforts, of course. Um, But it's so much more just being, I don't know, like, for me, it's so hard sometimes to, like, understand the mindset of a person who might say things that are racist, or might say things that just go against, like, who I am, because, like, it's hard for me to put myself in their shoes, because to me, I'm like, well, just be, like, a good person, <laughs> you know, like just be a good person, <laughs> and, like, then you'll be an ally, but I think, unfortunately it takes a little bit more kind of concerted effort than that um and Mm -hmm. so that's why we have to have these blog posts about how to be an ally but i get it i get like not knowing if you are already an ally because sometimes people think oh well i have friends who are people of color and they don't call me out on stuff so i must be a good Mm -hmm. ally but then think about are they comfortable even calling that out what might that do to your relationship so Again, not to make any listener like question if they're a good ally or not, but just understanding that like it does take effort and it does take risk um, and, you know, it's uncomfortable sometimes, but then think about the discomfort of the minority constantly. And so at Duke, I was told a couple of times um, and this, you know, this episode is not to like bash my PT program. I'm very happy that I went there. Um, Duke gave me a lot. Um, and I was told, like people have been told in many other programs, don't rock the boat and mm. oh, we wouldn't want to make people uncomfortable if we wanted to talk about racism and how that like health inequities like things that are very central to our profession um mm. and i never understood maintaining the comfort of the majority at the expense of the comfort of the minority you know I didn't understand why we couldn't all sit in this uncomfortable space together so that we can actually grow and so I think that if we can apply principles that we're more familiar with like an exercise like if you're never uncomfortable in exercise if you're not getting your heart rate up if you're not breathing hard like you're probably not making gains um and you know if, if if that's like your goal obviously um in that type of exercise but like in practical exams, and your PhD, when you're getting edits back, like, if you are never challenged, you know, then, like, how are you ever going to get better, Um, and I feel like that, I don't, I don't personally know why that mindset can't be adopted to, like, anti-racism efforts, other than the fact that I think people take it as a personal attack, Um, that, like, oh, you're calling me a racist, and so I think being called a racist has become a lot worse than actually being racist, and so if we can kind of help people to understand that, like, It's not necessarily just you, but you do have the power and responsibility and ability to change things. um, If you would just kind of like give in to the fact that like you are part of this fight as well. Um, And it's a good cause to be a part of. Yeah, absolutely. uh,
0: And I saw this a lot from my fellow white influencers this past few months, year, it's like a lot of just ego. And then it's embarrassing to watch it happen because you're like if you would just pause and sit with us for a second and recognize that like right. you're willing to get uncomfortable in every other area of your life and or go under the bus for other things like just pause you know mm-hmm. what I mean and the fact like something that you said like this is even a while ago that really set with me is that you've lost respect from people for speaking out about things and while I can't relate to that like in, in, in a term of like being a minority I, I mean I'm a big mouthed woman and I get that all the time I'm the bitch right like I get known as that but yeah. you shouldn't be the fact that you get respect loss from you for standing up for what is right and for humans right. just shows you the fact that that's an issue of like disrupting the status quo like that shouldn't lose your respect like that should be people should be respecting you more for being willing to like do that work that you again yeah. don't have to do but like the fact that you're like well people respect me less I'm like that that just right there the fact that that lost your respect just goes to show back how like that ties into just such I mean I guess there's an entire book called white fragility for a reason but like <laughs> like like just that being that that fragility around that and that ego or like not liking anyone that's willing to disrupt yeah. anything that's like comfortable or keeps you safe or doesn't put you on the spotlight and then like do you crumble or do you just you sit with your discomfort and get better moving forward and like I guess that was kind of the choice for a lot of people this year but mm-hmm. I don't know that mm-hmm. really stuck with me a lot when you're like that you lost respect for that I was like that should be Like, that's the most respectful thing any of us can be doing right now. So I don't know. That really sounds like having empathy and caring. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And it lost me respect until it was popular. And then all of a sudden I became Mm. one that people wanted to talk to and wanted to uplift. And so I thought that was really interesting too, Mm. to see like, and I don't judge people for it. That's human nature, but you know, Mm -hmm. it wasn't popular. Status quo didn't want to be challenged. And um, I'm not just talking about PT school, Um, but yeah, there were definitely people who like And I'm making some assumptions too, right? I'm biased as well, um, 100%. And so uh, there were definitely people though that like wouldn't really say hi to me sometimes like in the hallways if I wanted to say hi to them or like I felt like I couldn't go to them and talk to them about things and they kind of distanced themselves from me. And yet once all this stuff started becoming um, more popular to talk about and everybody was tweeting about it and now all of a sudden it's a hashtag. Now people Mm. want to talk to me about it and bring me on as like their like star guest and be associated with me. And that like just... I never, like, fought it because I was like, at least we're talking about it, um, mm-hmm. but it is eye-opening for sure, and I think you're right that, like, ego definitely plays a part in it, and it is unfortunate because I never want to, like, c- tell someone that they, like, are some egotistical, like, you know, only care about themselves type thing, and yet, yeah. like, that's also a part of human nature that definitely is pervasive. It's just a defense, it it's
0: a defense mechanism yeah. even in the best yeah. people, you know, I mean, you get yeah. have amazing other traits as humans, and it just becomes right. very defensive, but yeah, yeah. no.
1: All right, you guys, we had such a good conversation with Yusra that we went on and on and we could have kept going on and on for hours on end. So we have another hour-long second part that will be airing real soon so you can catch up with the rest of the conversation on racism and physical therapy, personality, mental health. So we are really excited for you guys to hear part two. Until then, we want you to live well, demand better, and stay messy.